Yes, it's time for the 149th QuackCast. The name of this particular episode is That's So Chiropractic. Bad old studies, fantastical autopsy results. I found the following quote at Chiropractic care can treat more than just bad backs. For your interest, no, chiropractic can't. Quote, Luce references a study in the Medical Times authored by Dr. Henry Windsor, M.D., that showcases the correlation of spinal health to overall wellness. Windsor dissected 75 human cadavers to investigate their causes of death. The study showed that 138 of the 139 diseases of internal organs that were present were in connection to the misalignments of the vertebrae. End quote. Well, I was intrigued. So I went to the videotape. Well, I went to the PDF. It makes for an interesting read. It was by a physician who is looking for an association between curvature of the spine and visceral pathology, and he found some. He had 50 corpses, age unknown, that he dissected, and looked at the spine for curvature, and then looked for pathology and organs in the same distribution of the sympathetic nervous system at the level of the curvature of the spine. It would be important to know the age and comorbidities of the patients, since curvature of the spine is a natural result of aging and can be found in normal people and also in those with nutritional and other metabolic problems. More importantly, there is no description of the definition as to what constitutes a curvature of the spine beyond the obscenity definition. He knows it when he sees it. In fact, he finds curvatures where, quote, such a curve would have been considered normal by many. He found the curves, then found internal pathology, then lined up the diseases with the curvature and found associations. 50 cadavers, 105 curvatures, of which 100 were minor, and of those 105 curvatures, 96, quote, showed evidence of disorders in some of the structures supplied by that portion of the sympathetic nervous system coming from the vertebral segments of the curvature. And why only some organs? And what was a minor curvature? And why were not all the organs in the sympathetic distribution diseased? I suppose because it's an imaginary association? Quote, or reversing the process of thought, 221 structures other than the spine were found diseased. Of these, 212 were observed to belong to the same sympathetic segment as the vertebrae in curvature. And when there wasn't an association, he found it was due to levels one up or one down. Close enough, right? Without knowing how abnormal curvature is defined and how the spines were examined, as far as I can tell, this is a massive example of confirmation bias. He saw what he wanted to see. There was a hodgepodge of problems discovered. There were infections and tumors and cirrhosis that, as he philosophically noted, are, quote, the ordinary diseases of adult life. It is curious that diseases with radically different pathophysiologies were thought to be perhaps due to spine curvature and involvement of the sympathetic nervous system. I can think of no reality-based physiology that would result in cancer and infection from interference with the sympathetic nervous system, and we have no way of knowing if the sympathetic nervous system was even impaired in these cadavers. 
It is a hypothesis, not a conclusion from his studies, and an awful hypothesis at that. And some of the processes do not even seem to be diseases at all. And of course, we do not know how we define them. There was one small bladder, one unduly large bladder, seven large and seven small red kidneys, one degenerated pancreas, whatever that is, one groin wound, four dilated stomachs, seven large and five atrophic spleens. We have no idea how these were defined or characterized. There were so many subjective findings. It seems as if there was no real pathology there. He found some anyway. This is the most curious example of presuming causation from association as I have ever seen. It is fun to read these old studies. This one was from 1921, in part due to the style of speech used, somewhat archaic and chatty compared to the dry prose of today's medical studies, and in part to see the complete lack of rigor in how information was measured and reported. By modern standards, this was truly an awful study. It would make a nice example for students on how not to do a study, for if a mistake could be made, it was. He concludes with the thought that children and dogs like to curl up to sleep because it, quote, relaxes the sympathetic nervous system, induces contraction of the great vessels, and empties the cerebral vessels. A unique explanation of sleep. Depriving the brain of blood by curling up. The report was from the 1920s, so I suppose we can cut the author a little slack for his unique hypothesis for sleep physiology. And how this fanciful study applies to the equally fanciful adjustments of subluxations of the spine performed by chiropractors is uncertain as, quote, all curvatures and deformities of the spine were rigid, apparently of long duration, irreducible by ordinary manual force. Extension, counterextension, rotation, even strong lateral movement failed to remove them or even cause them to change their relative positions, end of quote. Nothing there for a chiropractor to alter unless they use a hammer or perhaps a spring-loaded rod. Modern Bad Studies Frightening Autistic Children Hope for Autism, reads the title, from a chiropractor. I'm skeptical. I can't see how the manipulation of the spine to correct fanciful subluxations could do anything for autism. So I went looking for the original paper which is a journal so obscure, the Journal of Vertebral Subluxation Research, that it is not published on PubMed. But the original, Clinical Efficacy of Upper Cervical versus Full Spine Chiropractic Care of Children with Autism, a randomized clinical trial, is available on the internet for download. Their introduction is humorous, although I suspect not deliberately. Quote, Since the primary problem in autistic children is neurological, it is prudent to research the efficacy of chiropractic care in these children. Since at its heart, chiropractic has nothing to do with neurology or reality, I can't help but see that as humorous. They decide to answer the question as to, quote, which is the recommended chiropractic technique in these cases of autism? Ah, uh, I would wager none. It is every bit as methodologically horrible as you would predict. 
14 patients, no randomizing or most importantly blinding, no control, short-term follow-up, and outcomes based on parents' observations and the autism treatment evaluation checklist. Any positive results given the prior plausibility of chiropractic being zero is likely to be due to bias. The study and its results are best described as garbage. If the study was approved by an IRB, it is not mentioned in the methods, nor is there any mention of informed consent. The study does mention how stressful it was for these autistic children, and all for no valid therapeutic reason. Quote, A few of the children displayed aggressive behavior, such as pushing, falling, flaying, arms in the air, and kicking. These actions were usually momentary. Chiropractic care was resumed when the child was able to continue. X-ray examination proved to be the most difficult procedure for autistic children. Light from the collimator bulb either scared them or fascinated the children. They used the percussion adjustment instrument of the atlas orthogonal technique on these poor children. Quote, The patient is placed on his side with the head support at four inches below the mastoid. A metal stylus is placed between the mastoid and the ramus of the mandible. An adjustment, an impulse imparted as the stylus by a plunger that excites a compressional wave in the stylus, is then delivered to the patient. At the patient-stylus interface, a portion of the wave energy is transmitted to the patient and a portion is reflected back to the plunger. The former portion of energy is enough to direct the atlas vertebrae to move to its normal orthogonal position. No wonder these kids thrashed about in terror, being held down so a rod could thump them behind the ear like a mob execution. There is zero literature on the PubMeds to support the use of atlas orthogonal technique, and the pattern used to justify it sounds sciency, but as one chiropractor recognizes it, quote, is an outdated, unproven, unsubstantiated technique system. The kids also received an unhealthy dose of useless radiation. Quote, to attain this, the technique recommends four pre-adjustment cervical x-rays and two post-adjustment x-rays to be taken immediately after the first adjustment in the cervical area. X-rays are not a benign diagnostic modality. Although the data on ionizing radiation is from CAT scans, ionizing radiation should not be given as part of tooth fairy science without IRB approval and informed consent. Quote, Risk estimates are derived for pediatric CTs as well as for brain tumors in adults. On the basis of estimates for Germany about the number of head scans, the annual rate of radiation-induced diseases is calculated. About 1,000 annual pediatric CT investigations at the skull will lead to about three excess neoplasms in the head region, i.e. the probability of an induced late effect must be suspected in the range of some thousands. The scant literature on the topic of autism and chiropractic is summarized by the hope for autism authors is also horrible. Quote, Our systematic review of the literature revealed a total of five articles consisting of three case reports, one cohort study, and one randomized comparison trial. The literature is lacking on documenting the chiropractic care of children with ASD. However, given the ineffectiveness of pharmaceutical agents, a trial of chiropractic care for sufferers of autism 
is prudent and warranted? That's yet another example of, since airplane design has flaws, flying carpets should be used argument. A worthless study that served only to scare and irradiate autistic children and prove nothing about the efficacy of chiropractic for autism. If it had been approved by an IRB, they ought to be ashamed for allowing autistic children to be frightened and irradiated without good reason. Chiropractors, primary care, and vaccines. Some chiropractors want to become primary care providers. Jan Bellamy and Harriet Hall have written about this fantasy on science-based medicine. There are several issues with having chiropractors function as if they were knowledgeable and competent physicians, which they are not. The first is that their education in school is woefully inadequate to diagnose and treat common medical problems. The second is that their practical training is even less adequate. I have yet to meet a new medical school graduate who is even barely competent to take care of patients. It is why we have a residency. Most of the real meat of medical training occurs during the three to seven years after medical school. Chiropractors do not have any meaningful postgraduate training. And third, they do not want to participate in key concepts that make up primary care. Part of primary care is to diagnose and treat acute and chronic medical problems, and they have no training for this. But another part is health maintenance, doing the testing and treatments for the prevention of diseases such as colonoscopy, mammograms, and vaccines. Vaccines are a key part of health maintenance and arguably the most important intervention ever to improve human health. Well, maybe flush toilets and fresh water were more valuable. We could discuss that some other time. But part of health maintenance is making sure your patients are up to date in their vaccines. And chiropractors are often loud and proud against vaccines. For example, immunizations by Colorado DCs? Really? Quote, are you prepared to vaccinate? Did no one in Colorado get the memo? Based on the feedback I've received from previous columns, not many doctors of chiropractic support prescriptive injectables, and precious few would be willing to give immunizations to infants. And, quote, in my opinion, providing risky immunizations to Colorado babies for the purpose of accomplishing a pro-drug agenda is much like a betrayal of those infants for 30 pieces of silver. Chiropractors do not subscribe to the reality that vaccines have been and continue to be one of the key tools of infection prevention. Quote, a greater than 92% decline in cases and a 99% or greater decline in deaths due to diseases prevented by vaccines recommended before 1980 were shown for diphtheria, mumps, pertussis, and tetanus. Endemic transmission of polio virus, measles, and rubella virus has been eliminated in the United States. Smallpox has been eradicated worldwide. Declines were 80% or greater for cases and deaths of most vaccine-preventable diseases targeted since 1980, including hepatitis A, acute hepatitis B, Hib, Haemophilus B, varicella. Declines in cases and deaths from invasive strep pneumoniae were 34% and 25%, respectively. Chiropractors' heck-no-antagonism is further evidence against them being responsible for primary care. Quote, 
Are you willing to administer all those vaccinations to your infant, adolescent, and adult patients so you can meet the accepted standard of a primary care physician? I suspect the majority of you will not just say no, but will say, heck no. So if we are not willing to do that, then maybe it's time for us to stop trying to be something we don't want to be and trying to obtain the authority to do things we don't want to do. However, I do not think the majority of the chiropractic profession believes that primary care, when it includes the holy grail of vaccines, is the right course to follow. This is not an isolated opinion, but part of the chiropractic worldview. Quote, Anti-vaccination attitudes still abound within the chiropractic profession. Despite a growing body of evidence about the safety and efficacy of vaccination, many chiropractors do not believe in vaccination, will not recommend it to their patients, and place emphasis on risk rather than benefit. This puts the chiropractic profession outside the greater healthcare community and may contribute to its continued marginalization and small market impact and it disqualifies them as primary care providers. One would think that to practice primary care, people would need to understand the concepts behind primary care, and this chiropractor has the correct conclusion for his field. They have no business being in primary care. Chiropractic Stroke and Patient Safety I learned early in my career that even simple interactions can lead to harm. I had a patient as an intern who had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. In the field, they placed an IV for resuscitation. The IV site became infected. She became bacteremic. The infection went to her aortic heart valve, which blew out, and she died acutely. It is why I roll my eyes when people say that the first rule of medicine is to do no harm. Everything you do in medicine has the potential for harm, including doing nothing. All actions and all inactions can have bad consequences. The real rule of medicine is that the odds of providing benefit should be greater than the odds of doing harm. And there is a fudge factor for the disease being treated. I once took care of a patient who died of acute liver failure due to medication she was taking for toenail fungus. I always mention this to patients when they ask for tibinafine. There is a low likelihood of death but it is to treat a trivial problem, and most people find the risk-benefit unacceptable when I mention my case. There are other less toxic therapies for nail fungus. If you have a disease like leukemia, which offers certain death, patients are more likely to accept the risk of serious complications from chemotherapy or a bone marrow transplant since the potential payoff, life, is worth the risks of the treatment. Risks and benefits are variable, and deciding what to do is a complex calculus filtered through patient expectations and values, and is not done justice by the simplistic phrase, do no harm. The issue with most pseudomedicines is that they do nothing. They alter no physiologic process, so any side effect should not be acceptable. If the benefit is zero, the risk should also be zero. Cervical manipulative therapy has little real proven indication, especially if being used to fix mythical subluxations. Chiropractors are remarkably adamant that their adjustments are safe and do not cause stroke from vertebral artery dissection. They love to point to risk of vertebral basilar stroke in chiropractic care results of a population-based case control and case crossover study 
as evidence that chiropractic is safe and suggests that seeking chiropractic care for their prior vertebral artery dissection is the actual reason why they had a stroke. In point of fact, the study confirms the risk of stroke following cervical manipulative adjustment. As I noted at Science-Based Medicine, quote, a passive hanging, no drop, gives about 686 newtons of force around the neck for a 70-kilogram human. In chiropractic, the mean force of manual application is 264 newtons, with a mean duration of 145 milliseconds. So a chiropractic neck manipulation for a short period of time can provide 38% the force of a hanging, and a bad hanging at that. Neck injuries are not that frequent because the muscles of the neck prevent injury by preventing sudden disastrous movement. If you want to increase the chance of injury from relatively minor trauma, have the person relax. If the muscles are relaxed because the patient is not expecting the trauma, the chance of injury goes up. It is why whiplash can occur after minor injuries. Chiropractors often have their patients relax just before the coup de grace, I mean manipulation, helping to maximize the chance of injury despite having less force applied to the neck than a noose and gravity. Given the above, to claim that VBA occurred before the patient had a chiropractic neck manipulation is like saying the hanging victim had a broken neck, but it occurred on the steps on the way up to the scaffold. Now there is a position paper, Cervical Arterial Dissections and Association with Cervical Manipulative Therapy from the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association, which has been discussed at length by Dr. Novella. They review the literature and the anatomy of physiology in stroke. The money quote, quote, Although current biomechanical evidence is insufficient to establish the claim that CMT causes cervical artery dissections, CD, clinical reports suggest that mechanical forces play a role in a considerable number of CDs, and most population-controlled studies have found an association between CMT and VAD stroke in young patients. Although the incidence of CMT-associated CD in patients who have previously received CMT is not well established and probably low, practitioners should strongly consider the possibility of CD as a presenting symptom, and patients should be informed of the statistical association between CD and CMT prior to undergoing manipulation of the cervical spine. In epidemiology, Hill's criteria provide a framework for considering whether association is causation and is helpful when there are no definitive studies. We will never have a prospective trial of cervical manipulation for the purpose of seeing if it can induce a stroke, and given the rarity of the event, we will have to rely on less definitive criteria. Hill's criteria are, one, strength, two, consistency, three, specificity, four, temporality, five, biological gradient, six, plausibility, seven, coherence, eight, experiment, and nine, analogy. Hill's criteria have been applied to the concept of chiropractic subluxation, and the reality of subluxation was found wanting. Quote, there is a significant lack of evidence to fulfill basic criteria of causation. This lack of crucial supportive epidemiologic evidence prohibits the accurate promulgation of the chiropractic subluxation. For stroke causation, 
I think Hill's criteria are modestly met. The preponderance of information points to CMT as a risk for dissection and stroke, and there is certainly plausibility for what is fortunately a rare event. The case reports of stroke immediately following CMT give one pause. They may reach the level of parachute evidence. I have spent a significant part of my career in infection control and quality where we strive to apply the literature to maximize patient safety and to good effect. To date, the only pseudo-medical quality initiative that has led to an increase in patient safety, of which I am aware, is the use of sterile disposable acupuncture needles, an intervention they work hard to subvert by ignoring virtually all other infection control interventions, like gloves. A hallmark of pseudomedicine is they do not change because of data. In real medicine, we recognize the potential for harm and strive to reduce it. In my institutions, we try to always put patient safety first. The question is the response by the chiropractic community to the position paper. I would predict mm, denial rather than change in practice to increase the safety of their patients. And well, what do you know? From the American Chiropractic Association, quote, the largest and most credible study, Cassidy et al., which was garbage, found that a patient is as likely to have seen a primary care medical doctor as a doctor of chiropractic prior to experiencing a cervical arterial dissection. Neck manipulation is safe, conservative treatment option for neck pain and headache. The evidence presented in the AHA paper fails to show that neck manipulation is a significant risk factor for CD. In addition, the paper fails to put into context risks associated with other neck pain treatments such as neck surgery, steroid injections, and prescription drugs. And another leading scientist, Christine Gertz, D.C., as if there can be a chiropractic scientist. In an August 2nd speech, Christine Gertz, D.C., Ph.D., Vice Chancellor for Research and Health Policy at Palmer College of Chiropractic, explained that medical doctors and doctors of chiropractic need to be vigilant in assessing patients who may be in the early stages of vertebral artery dissection, VAD. It's also extremely important that data regarding the risk of VAD is presented to patients in an accurate manner. The facts that VADs are very, very rare events, and there's absolutely no research that shows a cause-and-effect relationship between chiropractic care and stroke, Gertz said. We have very rare events in real medicine as well. We used to use the antibiotic trovofloxacin at a rate of about 300,000 prescriptions a month, but there were six deaths and a handful of liver failures from the medications. And now, we no longer use it because there are safer therapies with equal efficacy. And unlike cervical manipulation for neck pain, an intervention that has no proven benefit, trovofloxacin was an effective antibiotic. To use massive understatement, the pharmaceutical industry has not always been forthcoming about the risks of their products. But when they are discovered by physicians, we respond in a way to maximize patient safety. The president of the Infectious Disease Society of America does not give a speech or produce a press release saying, quote, the facts are that liver failure are very, very rare events, and there's absolutely no research that shows a cause-and-effect relationship between trovofloxacin and liver failure. Or, trovofloxacin is a safe conservative treatment option for infection. 
the evidence presented fails to show that trovofloxacin is a significant risk in liver failure. In medicine, we balance the risk and the benefit of an intervention and try to do what is in the best interest of the patient, often by changing practice. When in doubt, we try and maximize patient safety. Chiropractic is more interested in keeping their business model active than changing in a manner that would decrease patient risk. But that is the case of all pseudo-medicines. Let's increase the chance for more strokes. A while back, I mentioned a study that wasn't a study by the British Chiropractic Association that suggested that texting could kill you. Their completely unsubstantiated theory is that texting, by causing the head to lean forward, would lead to hyperkyphosis, restrictive lung disease, and death. This idea has no basis in the medical literature that I can find. However, the English do not have the entrepreneurial spirit because it took Dr. Dean Fishman, a chiropractor, to create and trademark the phrase text neck, hereby referred to as TN. He has an Android app, 299, and a free version to let you know if you're using your neck at a dangerous angle. Why might you do this? Because TN, according to the Text Neck Institute, is a global epidemic. Text neck is a worldwide health concern, affecting millions of all ages and from all walks of life. Widespread overuse of handheld mobile technology is resulting in harmful and dangerous physical condition on the human body, which is known as text neck. And that will lead to, quote, flattening of the spine curve, early onset of arthritis, spinal degeneration, spinal misalignment, disc herniation, disc compression, muscle damage, nerve damage, loss of lung volume capacity, and gastrointestinal problems. TN is based on almost no data and or wild extrapolation, as the search term text neck has no hits on PubMed, maybe because it's trademarked. I do not doubt a stiff neck and tension headache may occur from prolonged use of a mobile device in an awkward position or doing these podcasts. I certainly get a sore neck at the computer, especially as the screen at work is not at bifocal level. But disc herniation? Loss of lung volume? Gastrointestinal problems? Color me skeptical. He quotes retinographic findings of the cervical spine in asymptomatic people as, quote, FHP has been shown to flatten the normal neck curve, resulting in discompression, damage, and early arthritis. The abstract is from 1986, long before cell phones and texting, and concerns the normal changes in the neck at aging. They note that, quote, it is important to realize that although retinographic abnormalities represent structural changes in the spine, they do not necessarily cause symptoms. He conveniently ignores the association between cervical spine curvature and neck pain, which suggests, quote, In conclusion, we suggest that the so-called abnormalities on the sagittal profile that are observed in the older patient with neck pain must be considered coincidental, i.e. not necessarily indicative of a cause of pain. This should be given due consideration in the differential diagnosis of patients with nonspecific neck pain. In the Cephalgia article, used as a reference, quote, the study demonstrated a strong association between increased forehead posture and decreased respiratory muscle strength in neck patients 
had in it a whopping 24 patients. Not the most robust literature to support the concept of TN. But the biggest concern with making TN a worry to people is the potential solution to the problem. Somehow, I suspect this will include chiropractic manipulation of the neck. Oh, goody. And that would lead to an increase in strokes. Great. And that brings us to the end of the 149th QuackCast. References for this and all the other podcasts are available at sciencebasedmedicine.org. As always, go to iTunes and write me glowing reviews. And don't forget to check out and perhaps even join the Society for Science-Based Medicine, sfsbm.org. Talk to you later. Bye.